Welcome to the Position of Neutrality Interactive Step Experience. Position of Neutrality is a study of the manner of living suggested by the founders of AA which was recorded in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. The story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Part 1 The Foundations What we do here is to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. There is a common misconception that when the word we is used in the book commonly referred to as the big book the authors are speaking of those in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous today. In fact, the book is titled Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. The first 100 people wrote the book. It is the story of their experiences and the path they took to awakening to a better way of living. It is their story, their testimony, their experience, we would be remiss if we changed their story by misperceiving that we are the we they are referring to. We are not. They are the we that is being referred to. Throughout its pages. Part 2 A Different Experience Let's hear this one from Joe. Welcome to Position of Neutrality. Welcome to New Freedom. Gotta ask, who's, who's here for the very first time tonight? Wow, a few of you. Good. So, first of all, welcome. And second, let us warn you in advance, you're liable to experience us just a little different than other meetings of other fellowships you may have attended. And the primary reason that's liable to happen is we intend for you to have a different experience here. What we do here, we've been doing for lots of years, we take a look at the suggested instruction for a step or so a week directly out of this book, and we use this book in 12-step recovery. Why? Yeah, the process described by the authors of this book has been proven to work with addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances. In fact, it's been known to work for all kinds of human conditions. That's why there's 12-step fellowships around gambling, eating, sex. Does it make sense? So this will restore us from any human condition we have, or at least the power it reveals in us and through us will restore us from any condition we have. Does that make sense? So whatever it is that brought you here, if you can find your experience in it, then we can promise you a new freedom at new freedom. Right? All right. Part three of Forward to the First Edition. Forward to the First Edition. So, what we want to do is go to the book and begin in the Forward to the First Edition which you'll find on page 13. This portion of the book, published in 1939 is going to help show you why we do this particular study the way we do it. We of Alcoholics Anonymous, are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. All we do is show you how we find our experience in the book and encourage you to have your experience. We are going to spend a little time on history, so you understand why we do what we do and who tells the story in this book. The process described by the authors of this book has been proven to work for addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances. Have you bounced in and out of recovery? The authors had. They were people who had a difficult time with recovery, but they were restored, and they tell us their story. We urge you not to be mistaken, this is their story, not ours. Our efforts through this process are to align our story with theirs and see how our experiences are like theirs, 
not to change their testimony. All other 12-step programs are based on the experiences shared in this book, which is called Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. If you know this is the story of how many thousands before you have recovered, then it would make more sense to see who is telling the story and how that came about. The authors are showing other alcoholics precisely how they have recovered, notice how it did not say to tell other alcoholics. Those of us that have bounced in and out of recovery have undoubtedly gotten this book and attempted to read it. We had thought we were reading a book about other people and then simply added our own experiences with direction from people we thought knew what they were talking about, and it does not work. There is a difference between fellowship and program. The program is in the book, the fellowship is in the rooms. In this segment we cover the program versus fellowship. The authors didn't form a fellowship and then write a book about it, they wrote a program describing precisely how they recovered. But then people say to us, you might be making that up. I direct your attention to where you can find that fact, go to page 15 in the forward of the second edition about three paragraphs down it says. So, it was now time the struggling groups thought to place their message and unique experience before the world. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the public publication of this volume. The membership then reached about a hundred men and women. And then the fledging society, which had been nameless, now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. For three years the small groups did it just sitting in groups, praying in each other's kitchens, helping those whom they could help. And then they decided to write a book to try and help get the message out. The fellowship is named after the book, not the other way around. There may be a place for fellowship, for reasons of support and camaraderie, but the program is in the book not the meeting halls. If you want to know precisely how they recovered, it is all in the book. Why is that important? If I think I am in the program and all I am doing is showing up to meetings, I am still going to be restless, irritable, and discontented and I am not going to have the freedom the authors found. I am not going to have the purpose these people found, and I am not going to be able to sit there very long. Time to grab your notebook and answer some questions. Remember write down the questions and then pause here. Press play once you have completed your answers. Here are your questions for segment 1. Question 1 Write out your answer. When the text uses the word, we, who are they referring to? Question 2 Write out your answer. Describe the difference between fellowship and program. Question 3 Multiple choice. Who wrote the book? A. My sponsor. B. The fellowship. C. My home groups. D. The first 100. E. All the above. Question 4 Multiple choice. Where do you find the program? A. Meeting halls. B. My sponsor's head. C. The fellowship. D. The pages of the book. E. All the above. Question 5 Write out your answer. What is powerlessness? Part 4 The Doctor's Opinion 
The doctor referred to in the doctor's opinion is William D. Silkworth, M.D. As a young intern at Bellevue Hospital in the year 1900, Dr. Silkworth found he was especially drawn to alcoholics and that alcoholics were drawn to him. Over the following decades, his personal modesty, disarming gentleness, and his profound understanding of the disease helped him secure the trust of his alcoholic patients, a vital component needed when working with alcoholics. In the early 1930s, his decades of tireless hard work finally paved the way for a new era that fused medical and spiritual healing. While working with a patient named Bill Wilson at Towns Hospital in New York City, they became aware of and began to apply a practical, workable solution to alcoholism. Centuries of a world without an answer to alcoholism ended when the blueprint for a spiritual experience or spiritual awakening was discovered and applied simultaneously in New York City and Akron, Ohio. By the time Dr. Silkworth wrote his two letters included in the doctor's opinion, he had 38 years experience working with alcoholics, and by this time he had worked with over 40,000 alcoholics. Let's look at the title of the chapter, The Doctor's Opinion. The dictionary definition for a medical opinion is, a judgment based on special knowledge and given by an expert, a medical opinion. So, when Dr. Silkworth wrote the two letters for this chapter, he was providing his professional medical opinion. His medical opinion was not the same as my opinion or your opinion on alcoholism. It was the opinion of a medical doctor, a doctor with at that time 38 years experience working with alcoholics. Dr. William Duncan Silkworth died of a heart attack in his home in New York, Thursday morning, March 22nd. Thus we of AA have lost the physical presence of the great doctor who was our first friend. He gave deep understanding and great encouragement to an infant society in the days when a lack of understanding or a word of discouragement might easily have killed it. He freely risked his professional reputation to champion an unprecedented spiritual answer to the medical enigma and the human tragedy of alcoholism. Without his blessing, our faith might well have died in its birth. He was a luminous exception to the rule that only an alcoholic understands an alcoholic. He knew us better than we knew ourselves. Better than we know each other. Many of us felt that his medical skill, great as that was, was not at all the full measure of his stature. Dr. Silkworth was something that it is difficult even to mention in these days. He was a saintly man. He stood in an unusual relationship to truth. He was able to see the truth of a man, when that truth was deeply hidden from the man himself and from everyone else. He was able to save lives that were otherwise beyond help of any kind. Such a man cannot really die. Our friend has only left us. For a while. Copyright the AA Grapevine Incorporated, April 1951 Let's take a look at the doctor's opinion. The previous page is a copy of an article that appeared in the Grapevine, an AA publication, announcing the passing of Dr. Silkworth, the man who wrote the doctor's opinion of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a physician at the hospital where Bill W. was a patient a few times before having the experiences that led him to write the book. Keep in mind, the doctor will tell you who he was, but what he was not, was an alcoholic. The alcoholics who ask the doctor to share will then share their opinion of the doctor's opinion. I want to show you all this so you can see how convoluted it gets if we don't use the text. We can get the message lost quickly. And the guy that wrote most of this book, even though it was edited by the first 100 and they agreed on every word, was a stock analyst, and a very successful one. Bill W. was a famous atheist. 
And what he did in writing the book Alcoholics Anonymous was he laid out the case based on his experience, for why it was more logical to believe than not to believe. Bill was a very successful stock analyst before the Great Depression. He put together stock deals that netted businesses millions of dollars during a time period when a million dollars was almost an unheard of sum of money. He did not remain an atheist. He lays out the case in the pages of the book, how he came to believe in power. But if we don't lay the case out properly, we lose people. We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Why did the first 100 believe the medical opinion to be so important? The authors are going to show us this fantastic testimony about the spirit coming into them and raising them to a level of life better than the best they had ever known. And they wanted us to hear a scientific opinion of their experience. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had the experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he has been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. This is Dr. William Silkworth speaking, who at the time was an expert on alcoholism. Alcoholism was not recognized as a disease at that time, nor was addiction. But they had a lot of veterans coming back from World War I, and they were trying to treat them. He's trying to treat our population before it was recognized as a behavioral disorder. Try to understand what the doctor is telling us. How many of you had doctors tell you that you needed to change what you were doing, or you were going to be dead soon? This is the leading physician in the country, and he's telling us that he believes Bill to be hopeless. And that there exists a category of drinker, just like some of us, who are of the hopeless variety. This is a profound statement. We want you to understand the miraculous recovery the doctor witnessed. If we don't understand who is saying this, we are likely to miss just how great his witness is to us alcoholics. The doctor goes on to say. In the course of his third treatment he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance, because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. This is a doctor speaking, a medical doctor witnessing to us that he is born witness to a miracle. How many of you have struggled a little, maybe bounced in and out a time or two in your recovery? How many of you have felt diminished by people when you came back, and people weren't as kind as they might have been? How many of you have felt unworthy of redemption? Let's remember that the author of this book was on his third treatment. So sometimes we bounce a little. The doctor then prophesied that the solution these authors found was so profound that he believed it was going to solve problems for thousands. By the writing of the book the numbers were in the thousands. We are in the millions of lives saved now, 
80 years later. There is power in this testimony, there's always power in testimony. I want you to understand why we don't change the testimony of the authors found in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now we're going to look at what the doctor's opinion was and the alcoholic's opinion of the doctor's opinion, because alcoholics are prone to share their opinions. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter, has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. But we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. What a relief to understand that we have a condition of the mind, body, and spirit that would not allow me to use and drink in any other way, except destructively. I burn the house down or live in my car. That doesn't excuse it, but it explains it. Now I understand that my addiction is a calling, not a curse. Once I encounter the power and I commit to go introduce others to the power that restores, I now have purpose in my suffering, therefore no suffering. It becomes a manner of living to assist others in finding that restorative power. Is that satisfying to be told that? That you could not control your heroin smoking? Or your meth shooting? That you were maladjusted to life? Or that you were a mental defective? Most of us have been told something like that, throughout the course of our drinking and drugging. Or were all of you very polite and kind of chill in your active addictions? We're all a little bit perplexing even to ourselves, especially during a particularly ruinous run. Like the ones that landed us in prison or some equally thought-provoking institution. One of the things I think our fellowship does terribly is help people understand what the authors are telling us. Based upon their witness, we won't get well until we know this. Time to grab your notebook and answer some questions. Remember write down the questions and then pause here. Press play once you have completed your answers. Here are your questions for segment 2. Question 1. Write out your answer. What's the source of convincing testimony? Question 2. Write out your answer. How did Dr. Silkworth describe Bill? Question 3. Write out your answer. What happened during Bill's third course of treatment? Question 4. Write out your answer. As part of Bill's recovery, what did he try to impress upon our alcoholics? Now that we have learned about the doctor's opinion, let's learn about the manifestation of an allergy. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. We believe in and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. How many of you have had trouble with the idea of having an allergy to drugs or alcohol? How many of you thought it sounded silly enough you just didn't even listen to it? That's medical speak for when people have an abnormal reaction to something they ingest. They describe it this way for a reason. 
the doctor observed that alcoholics, for reasons he could not comprehend, had an abnormal reaction. When a doctor, a medical person describes an abnormal reaction, they'll say something like, that may be the manifestation of an allergy. Do you find that you get energized when you drink? Maybe that's an abnormal reaction to a sedative. How about you opiate addicts? Did that sedative energize you too? Meth addicts. Did that stuff calm you down? That's extraordinarily abnormal, right? The point is, they wanted us to understand this because it makes us part of a special class that this doctor thinks are of this type, or rather the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. How many of you ever got loaded and then found you took more than you'd intended? And I know some of you will say, I always intended to do that much, but sometimes we broke the budget, right? This is a description of a medical opinion based on experience. If I don't understand that I have this abnormal reaction the I won't understand that I don't stand a chance. I won't understand that I need a healer. And I won't know that the doctors can't heal my abnormal reaction. But I am going to be empowered to avoid such difficulties. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit, found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human their problems pile up on them and they become astonishingly difficult to solve. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic types must hold depth and weight. Has this happened to you? Some people don't like to admit they've lost self-confidence but showing up in fellowships of recovery is often a passive admission that we've lost self-confidence in one particular area. How many of you have tried to will it away or tried to do it for somebody else? How many of you have had plenty of frothy emotional appeal poured on you? How did it work out here? Not so well, huh? Typically, when fellowship people talk about depth and weight, we hear them talk about horror stories. But the authors are not talking about depth and weight regarding how dark my darkness is, what they want me to understand is the depth of my redemption and my redeemer. They want me to understand what's happening to me, a tangible sensory experience that allows me to go from dead to alive. Any of you get sick enough in your addiction, that you really were just a dead man or woman walking? And then what happened? Most of us can tell you, when and all the events leading up to that moment. When the obsession to drink and use was suddenly gone. We have a much harder time discussing how, because frankly one day I was the guy who got high and loaded every day of my life no matter what and then one day pal I just didn't want to anymore. I can't tell you how it happened, but I can definitely introduce you to the one who relieved me of my alcoholism. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves, if they are to recreate their lives. The doctor knew it and he knew that it was beyond his human ability, and the A's knew it because they had had an experience with power. That's the power we call God. This experience is not coming from the pages of this book. That's a revelation within you, it's coming from deep down inside you. Time to grab your notebook and answer some questions. Remember write down the questions and then pause here. 
Press play once you have completed your answers. Let's go through the questions for segment 3. Question 1. Write out your answer. What did the doctor say to be the cause of out-of-control drinking or using? Question 2. Write out your answer. Does this phenomenon occur in normal drinkers? Question 3. Write out your answer. Did the pleading of your loved one help you see the truth of your addiction? Who was that person in your life? Question 4. Write out your answer. What type of message can help an alcoholic see the truth? Now let's discuss the moderate drinker versus hard drinker. What has been indicated now is that I'm not a moderate drinker. On page 20 of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, we are going to take a look and do some self-diagnosis. We are going to start with the moderate drinker even though we have already decided that we are past that. Then we will go very quickly onto the hard drinker. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely. If they have good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor, becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. The hard drinker is distinguished from the real alcoholic in the fact that although he may find quitting difficult and troublesome, he can stop, if there is a strong enough reason such as ill health or falling in love or a change of environment, etc. This type is confusing to those of us of the hopeless variety, because he may go to detox and from there to a residential facility and pretty soon, he has started showing up in the 12-step fellowship rooms. He talks about a true experience. It is his experience but it's not my experience. He just doesn't pick up, no matter what. Nothing has changed in him, he just doesn't drink. But the condition given was that for sufficient reason, he could stop or moderate his slash her drinking or drug use. How many of you blew past all those barriers of sufficient reason? How many of you still think you might be a hard drinker because you don't lose control every time? Looking back on those times when you did maintain control, did you honestly know which times those would be? If not, did you ever really have control or was it just an illusion of control? Can we cross hard drinker off the list? How many of you still think you might be a hard drinker? Because you don't think you lose control every time? In fact, we even admit to ourselves that, Yep sometimes I go on a sick one and can't remember what happened. Or sure, I do some dumb shit and end up in places I hadn't intended all I want to ask is, if it doesn't happen every time, do you know which time it will happen? And if you don't know which time, did you ever really have control or is it an illusion? The text later states, the persistence of this illusion is astonishing, 
and many of us chase it into the gates of insanity or death yet here we are. Restored from that. The authors go on to tell us about the real alcoholic or addict. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker, he may or may not become a continuous hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Here is the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking, he's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. I want to draw your attention to the way in which the authors use the third person. If I read about myself in the third person, it's not as assaulting on my ego. Who is the fellow who's been puzzling me when I'm actively addicted? Wait. I'm the guy puzzling me. But I always convince myself that it's somewhere out there, happening to some other person. The authors wrote the book so I could safely self-discover while I'm focused on the guy in the book. The authors are helping me to safely face my delusion. Remember, this guy was a stock analyst. He sold million-dollar deals to people. He knew what he was doing. We don't need to change the testimony of this story. Just read the book. He lays out the case. This guy is brilliant. Have any of experienced a little personality change while under the influence? I drank a lot, but I'm never drunk. Any of you ever drive yourself to the detox and when they took your blood alcohol content were told, dude, you should be hospitalized. To which you may have replied something like, hence, my arrival. Pretty sure I kept the car in the lines. As alcoholics we tend to respond in ways that are outside the realm of reasonable. We can be calm in the face of calamity yet go off the rails over tiny things. Can you think of any absurd and tragic things you've done? How many of you know what your normal nature is? Questions for Segment 4 Question 1 Write out your answer. What is the specific purpose of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous? Question 2 Write out your answer. If you are a moderate or hard drinker, what can you do that a real alcoholic cannot? Question 3 Write out your answer. In what ways have your actions and thoughts puzzled you? Now on to the real alcoholic. So, what about the real alcoholic? It's not just the guy who announces he is a real alcoholic in the back of the meeting room with the raspy voice sounding as if he just smoked 10 cigarettes. I want to bring your attention back to the section manifestation of an allergy and review the reason real alcoholics find it difficult to stop and stay stopped. Remember the authors told us that, the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all.
Are you beginning to see yourself and align your experience with that of the authors? Turn to page 23 in Alcoholics Anonymous, let's look further at what the authors tell us about the effects alcohol has on the body of an alcoholic. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind, rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic drinking bout creates. The insanity of alcoholism and addiction is not what happens after I take the first drink. That's the crazy shit that happens to crazy drunk people like me. It's a natural consequence of the way I drink that I cause calamity. But that is not the insanity. If the problem centers in the mind however I'm certifiably insane if I know myself alcoholic before I take the first drink. The doctor recognized it as restless, irritable, and discontent unless I can get ease and comfort. How many of you were full of reasons why you went out and used again? How many of you really knew why? I mean, literally, once you were high and you knew you had to go show up somewhere, the excuse machine just started kicking in because you knew there was going to be an explanation demanded. But you didn't really know why you continued to get high, did you? They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time. But in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. But they often suspect they are down for the count. Would you hit yourself on the head to stop yourself from feeling a headache? The authors know us because they became properly armed with the facts about themselves. And they are uniquely suited to help others who are suffering from the same condition. The authors are still describing themselves as a way for the reader to begin to align his or her story with that of theirs. When Bill wrote, once in a while he may tell the truth, he is beginning to describe the sensory battle between the head and the heart. I can make up the excuse, but I know I'm lying. And you know I'm lying. I know I'm baffled. I don't want to feel this now. I'm just going to push it down inside myself. This is the point in my journey when I meet the guy in the meeting who says, I don't pick up, and no matter what. Statements like this feed my obsession, because I pick up, and no matter what. We tell you this to warn you to get your program from the book and your fellowship from wherever you choose and to help you understand the difference between the two. How true this is, few realize. In a vague way their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal, but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. The authors are trying to differentiate for us between the moderate and hard drinkers and the alcoholics of the hopeless variety. How many of you have that family member who was the hard drinker? He would show up to family events trashed and make an ass out of himself, but he was able to not drink or not do a little coke when it was time to go to work or attend a more public event. Or Uncle Billy who began to have some heart trouble and the doctor told him to quit drinking and now he is fine? 
Our families often wonder why we can't do the same thing when presented with evidence that the drink or the drug is becoming too much to handle, and the evidence mounts showing us that we cannot control our using. The authors go on to describe the real alcoholic. The tragic truth is that if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost control. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. Have you ever lost something? Car keys? Your dope? Can you bring to mind the sensation of knowing it was gone? The authors agreed on every word used in their book. The author is speaking of the control he lost, that the first 100 lost. This is the sensation that no matter how hard one wants to stop drinking we're using, they can manifest no outward action to show it. How many of you passed into this state? How many of you thought you were just fooling around and then when you had to get serious, you realized that no amount of seriousness was going to stop that next run? If you're like me and the guy writing the book and I don't find a spiritual solution, the time is coming that there will be a pop quiz on my spiritual status. A time when I will run into the homie at the quick stop, he'll offer me some dope and I will be faced with a decision. And if I am not doing something to enlarge my spiritual connection, I will have a blank spot and I'll twist off again. That's the reason I might want to do the steps rather than just sit in a meeting and not drink no matter what. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable, at certain times, to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So, what that means is that everyone who tells you I choose not to drink today is either not like you and I, or they don't know what this book says. And my only question to them is, if you choose not to drink today, why didn't you choose to stop before you ended up in this fellowship? Why didn't you choose to stop before you lost your job and your wife and your home? I mean, if it was really a choice, why didn't you choose it before you burned your whole life down? I call this to your attention because I came into a fellowship where people told me, when you want to drink, think it through. Play the tape. If you can't remember your last drink, you haven't had it yet. The authors of this book just told me that at a certain point, I will be unable to bring to consciousness the gravity of what's about to happen. Without sufficient force, that memory doesn't matter, no matter how many tapes I watch, I know how it ends. I get loaded and live under a bush. I've seen the movie. I remember my last drink and the one before that and the one before that. They didn't stop me because I could not bring to consciousness with sufficient force, the memory of suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. See how they laid it out so clearly. It has nothing to do with memory. This isn't cognitive behavioral therapy. I don't get to decide when the beast goes back into its cage. If we don't get a spiritual solution, folks, and we belong here as addicts of the hopeless variety, we're screwed. Turn to page 30 more about alcoholism. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. This is important. We don't want to read that till we've seen how they define a real alcoholic. So how many of you found yourself in the could-be-a-real-alcoholic category? The book says most of us have been unwilling to admit that we were. Look for the ways that the author's experience aligns with your own. 
Is that true for you? Did you go from bragging about how much you drink to lying about how much you drink? No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently may be, has to be smashed. No one wants to believe themselves inferior. I can whip anyone or I haven't ever lost a fight we especially are reluctant to admit that a substance that I have chosen to ingest has gotten the better of me, despite the evidence which suggests otherwise. How many countless vain attempts have you made in an effort to control and enjoy your drug use or drinking? It is easy to read past this point in the text. We want to both control and enjoy our substance, right? But they are mutually exclusive. I can either control it, which means I'm not enjoying it, typically because I'm not doing enough, or I can enjoy it, because I am definitely not controlling it. That's the type of alcoholic the authors are describing here. This applies to the addicts too. How many of you were only going to do a $20 but ended up spending the rent check on an ounce? Or a pound? I'll flip it to make my money back. I'm getting high for free, at the end of that run how many of you had no dope, no money, and no place to live? The authors reiterate that many people pursue liquor and drugs to the point of death, but then hammer home the beginning step of recovery, the necessity of knowing beyond any doubt that I am an addict and alcoholic. The only way that's going to happen is to know that it's an illness and to understand that even though I know I have an illness, I cannot arrest the illness on my own. Therefore, I need a healer. The case is laid out perfectly for us to read. They said the first step in recovery was to learn that they, the first 100, and we had to fully concede to our innermost selves. We can't do that based on a lie. I can tell you all kinds of stories, but I always know for the most part when I'm really crushed or when I'm trying to lie to myself. I realize some of you reading this might be confused by seeing the first step up on the wall every time you walk into a meeting, and it doesn't say that we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost self. What's the step usually say when we walk in the room? We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. Wait, what? Are there two first steps? We've got the first step on the wall, and then we have the experience that's required to embark on your journey and come into your awakening. The final sentence in the previous section of text serves to reinforce the idea that my belief in my ability to control my drinking and drugging is nothing but a delusion. You will notice that the authors didn't state their ability to smash their own delusions. Anyone who claims to be able to smash their own delusions is delusional. The nature of delusion is that you are lying to yourself and you don't know it. One can't smash their own delusions, there is going to need to be a power greater than me to smash my delusions. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals usually brief were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. 
We are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better. Time to grab your notebook and answer some questions. Remember write down the questions and then pause here. Press play once you have completed your answers. Questions for Segment 5 Question 1. Write out your answer. Why is it important to fully concede to our innermost self? Question 2. Write out your answer. Who does the phenomenon of craving occur in? Question 3. Write out your answer. Alcoholism is a two-part disorder, name those two parts. Question 4. Write out your answer. Explain depth and weight. Question 5. Write out your answer. What is frothy emotional appeal? Question 6. Write out your answer. As an addict, where does your main problem rest? Question 7. Multiple choice. Which of your loved ones have you tried to quit for? Mom. Kids. Probation slash parole officer. Best friend. Significant other. Question 8. Write out your answer. Explain the difference between relationship and religion. Question 9. Write out your answer. When did you suspect that you had passed the point of hard drinker or user into a real alcoholic or addict? Question 10. Write out your answer. What's your solution to quit drinking or using? Question 11. Write out your answer. What did you say to people when they asked why you kept using despite the consequences? Question 12. Write out your answer. When did you realize that you couldn't stop once you had started? Question 13. Write out your answer. What have you been delusional about? Question 14. Write out your answer. Have you fully conceded that you are an addict or alcoholic? Bill, do you want to just start right out by telling us how you founded AA? Yes. All right. I didn't drink anything until the First World War. And then somebody handed me a Bronx cocktail. And I drank it. And the whole face of the universe instantly changed. This stuff is the elixir of the gods, for heaven's sakes. It does perfectly marvelous things for you. I lay drunk for three days. That is not the habit of drinking. That is the obsession of drinking. My name is Norm. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Phil, and I'm an alcoholic. These people drink like I do, and yet they're staying sober. How do they do it? Part of Bill's working with alcoholics was he had this thirst for more. This thirst. Will it ever be quenched? No, never. Because we are meant to thirst. The question is, where do we aim what we thirst for? 
Bill Wilson was an alcoholic in recovery, who by divine grace was granted sobriety, empowered to bring to the world this message. But I think he was not granted the full knowledge of what the price would be. Here's the man who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, but he couldn't be a player in AA. Bill was put in the place of having no money, no job, and then being asked to continue to have no money and no job. He had 30,000 opportunities not to go forward with AA. He did not give up. Bill kept going, striving forward all the time. From my personal perspective, there's not a more important person in the 20th century than Bill Wilson. I'd be a dead man without him. And you go forth as Bill Wilson did, and you do what you can to make things better. Now let's go into Bill's story. Liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars. And I would pay my bills at the bars and the delicatessens. This went on endlessly. And I began to wake up very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by a half dozen bottles of beer would be required, if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. He says that with an earnestness because it was a real shift of intent. How many of you can bring to your mind right now, a time when you knew that you weren't drinking or using because you wanted to, but you were doing it because you had to. Did it go back and forth? Did you think perhaps you had overreacted? Bill is telling the story of being in that place where, I'm really not behaving like I want to in spite of my insistence that I'm drinking the way I want to. Can you relate to what he's talking about? It's a weird place where we find ourselves. Bill goes on to describe what it was like for him when he would wake up shaking. Notice the words he uses, were required. Bill is talking about knowing that his drinking was killing him yet couldn't manifest any outward action or ability to stop drinking. How far did you take it before you knew that you had to do something different? How many drugs or drinks did you take after you decided to stop? Did you have control over your drinking and drugging? Bill is talking about the condition that is often seen when people come to this realization, and they think they're going to will away their addiction. We come into fellowships, and they say, just play the tapes. Think it through. If you can't remember your last drink, you haven't had it yet. I can remember my last one and the one before that, and the one before that, and the one before that. What do you got for me? Because it's just making me thirsty all this thinking. I call that to your attention because he's trying to describe the condition of the insane mind. We are the people who are insane, who do not believe ourselves to be insane, who think we're doing what we want to do, when we know we're not. I still thought I could control the situation. And there were periods of sobriety, which renewed my wife's hope. Gradually things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at a low in 1932, and I'd somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prodigious bender and that chance vanished. We would like you to pay attention to what he thinks is gradual and then compare it to your own life. Because when we're in addiction, what we think is gradual, other people see as catastrophic. Evictions, repossessions, and the like, usually don't happen to people who are not in our class, the alcoholic. 
How many have you been asked to leave more than once? That's an abnormal reaction. How many of you came into a brand new business opportunity at the height of your addiction? What did you do with it? Now, we don't use terms like prodigious bender, but you know what he's talking about, right? How many of you just got on a sick one for a week and thought, gee, I wonder if that guy is still there to meet me. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business. And so, I did. Shortly afterward I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. How many of you really meant at this time and had someone in agreement with you? Guys, it isn't that I didn't mean it. It isn't that I wanted to let them down. I was powerless over the obsession to get free of me in the way that alcohol would free me of myself. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what Bill is talking about too. Bill then goes on to ask himself how he had found himself in such a plight. How many of you asked yourselves, how did this happen again? Or why did I do that? How many of you were asked those same questions by loved ones or probation officers who insisted that you know the answers to those questions? So usually what do we of the alcoholic variety do in those situations? We make shit up. How many of you got to that place where you questioned your own sanity? Wouldn't it have been nice to know that there were actually physicians that were in agreement with you? Refer to the previous section and review the things the doctor wrote. They're telling us what alcoholic and addictive insanity is. It's an appalling lack of perspective. The inability to see beyond. To tell me to look back or look forward has no meaning in the moment where I am in so much pain that I have to escape me. So, I medicate by using and drinking myself into oblivion. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed, and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street, lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. How many of you got to that place of hopelessness? You might have started showing up in the meetings, got the 24-hour chip and were coming right up on the cusp of a 30-day chip? And then thought, well, perhaps I've overreacted. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Do you see the logic? Bill does not realize that he's lost the power of choice. The insanity had already started by the time he walked into the bar room. Insanity of the first drink started before, it didn't happen after the first drink. We don't know that until someone properly armed with the facts about themselves introduces us to the program of AA rather than the fellowship of AA. How many of you took a drink after some time in recovery or took a drug, and then all of a sudden, your mind is going crazy? What am I going to say? How am I going to cover this? I'm not going to have enough to get through the night. Think about how Bill's relapse had to feel. 
attempt to align your relapse experiences to his. This is a guy who survived war. He was a war hero. He had been a genius on Wall Street. People spent millions of dollars on his advice. And suddenly, he's looking at the markets. He's got more faith in the collapsing market than he does in his own ability to stop drinking. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So, two bottles, and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms, for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window, or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back, as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow, I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor, lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity. So did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill, bodily and mentally. When Bill says, that was a hard thought, he is expressing an experience of powerlessness and unmanageability that I'm now having to internalize, as I read and begin to see how my experience is like his. When I make that admission, I'm talking about a sensory experience I have endured. Notice how Bill tied those two thoughts together. He went to people he trusted, he stole from them. He knew there was no other earthly explanation for what he had done and then rather than face them, when he knew that he was going to lie and they knew he was lying, he'd rather kill himself. Bill is trying to describe a scene to get us to see the strange things going on in our minds and emotions, and addiction. How many of you find it funny to think of going to the doctor to get off one substance only to find yourself on both? Having the doctor prescribe something far more addictive like methadone, suboxone, or Adderall. But he was talking about trying to detox himself at home. How many of you have tried that little trick on the streets? It's very dangerous. He's talking about how sick he got, and he was self destructive, so his wife finally called for a physician. The physician gave him a sedative. And then we found out well, my alcohol problem is solved at last. I simply had a Valium deficiency. Because that's how we roll in our addictions. Read the last sentence in the preceding big book section, again. We have to understand that, because that's the most important piece of the puzzle. We addicts don't seek a healer when we don't think we're sick. When you think you're just selfish, when you think you're just flawed, you're not. I want you to know, if you're reading this book, there is nothing wrong with you. That's what the authors are trying to tell you. You're sick bodily and mentally if you have this addictive disorder. But they have a solution. It's not a synthetic solution. Man has not come up with a solution, not then and not now, but there is a solution and we're going to talk about that. The authors go on to explain. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer self-knowledge. 
But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. How devastated were you when you realized that inevitably, you could not stop. What you are doing, you keep doing over and over again. Even when you don't want to? Though it often remains strong in other respects. How many of you held a job, kept things together, but couldn't stop tearing everything else apart? It's baffling. Isn't it? Cunning, baffling, powerful. You can understand now why they use the words they use. Did the authors help you understand your incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop? Did it help you to understand? Not only did they know how desperately you have wanted to stop, but they knew 80 years ago when they wrote the book, how impossible it was for you to stop, because it was impossible for them to stop. Bill wrote it in here so that we would have a picture of depth and weight, so we can level the playing field, so we could talk to you about a redemption experience that required something other than synthetic methods. Bill then describes the situation as beginning to look better. He describes the answer as being one of self-knowledge. I'm good, I got this, I don't pick up, no matter what. Like Bill, what happened to you? How devastated were you when inevitably, you drank or used again? What had happened? Had you been serious and meant it when you stated, I'm good, no more dope for me? Bill goes on to tell of his health beginning to decline, of having to be hospitalized again, of his wife learning from doctors that he would most likely die a terrible alcoholic death. Did you ever have a doctor give you such a prognosis? How impressed were you by the things they told you? The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium treatments, or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. They did not need to tell me. I knew, and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. Our families are devastated by that news or maybe they have ceased caring anymore. But I, the one they are talking about, it's like they're talking about somebody else. Don't tell me what's going to happen I already know, tell me when it's going to happen. Bill was done. He just didn't have the sense to lie down. He is trying to explain the sensation of how dead he was on the inside. Bill is painting a picture of wanting to die but being unable to pull the trigger. How many of you got to the point where you just knew there was no way to make it right? There's no reason to even try. If I don't try again, I can't fail again. Have any of you gotten to that point? Have you ever got to the point of accepting your own death? Time to grab your notebook and answer some questions. Remember write down the questions and then pause here. Press play once you have completed your answers. Questions for segment 6 Question 1 Write out your answer. Bill says that liquor ceased to be a luxury and became a necessity. At what point in your drinking and using did this become true for you? Write about that moment. Question 2. Write out your answer. 
What is Alcoholic Insanity, as described in AA's book? Question 3. Write out your answer. What events caused you to awaken to the realization that you needed to stop using? Were you able to do so? Question 4. Write out your answer. How many times were you confident in your ability to remain sober only to end up drunk slash high again? Question 5. Write out your answer. Why do you think you couldn't quit when you wanted to? Question 6. Write out your answer. Describe the moment when you came to know that you couldn't quit by choice. Question 7. Write out your answer. Tell of a time you went to a doctor to get off drugs only to find that what they gave you was better than the substance you went to get off? Question 8. Write out your answer. Was self-knowledge and an understanding of you lack of willpower enough to cause you to stop? Question 9. Write out your answer. Tell of a time that you became completely hopeless, and your pride was devastated? Bill goes on to describe an experience that relates to where he is at emotionally. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink, and on Armistice Day 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. How many of you can feel the loneliness and despair, and were feeling like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die alone, everyone hates me, I can't do anything about it. In fact, I don't even want to do anything about it. Notice here is Bill's first admission of a power greater than himself. Please don't misunderstand this point. We're not telling you, that you immediately must have a theology and to be risen and confessing Jesus at this point. What we are telling you is that if you don't believe there's a power greater than you that is called alcohol, methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine, what are you doing here? You're wasting valuable high time. Go forth and moderate your drug and alcohol consumption. The point we are making is that we'll work on growing spiritually once we realize we can no longer safely take synthetic spirits. How many of you got sobered by fear for a bit? All of us at some point. There it is again, the insanity of the first drink, the insanity precedes the drink. It doesn't come after. What happens after the first drink is the silly shit that happens to drunk or high people. Bill begins to paint a picture of hope. He describes it, so we don't have to make it up. He's going to tell us what he means by catapulted into a fourth dimension of existence. What he's promising you is, at that darkest point in his life, he was just inches away from a new manner of living as a new creation that gave him purpose and filled him with peace. So, he's trying to tell you, if you're almost there. You're almost there. Let us join with you and let's take this journey together. Because there's a new life coming and what you were living was not life, it was death. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness, in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen, 
With a certain satisfaction I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. Consider the situation as the author is describing it, he is sitting at home, he has enough booze to last the night, and no one is around to complain about the amount he is drinking. He is even planning ahead, because he knows that he's going to get good and plastered, enough so that he will pass out. He knows that by morning he will be too sick to get out of bed without having to take a few tentative sips to stop the vomiting. Ever have to save a shot just so you could meet the dope man first thing in the morning? Ever hide your booze by the bed so you wouldn't have to stumble to find it? Bill is about to have the experience that catapulted him into that fourth dimension he was talking about earlier. He is about to be contacted by his old school friend Ebby. Ebby to Bill is that one guy that no matter how bad Bill got, at least he wasn't that bad yet. Ebby is the guy who does not show up anywhere sober. Bill is wondering how Ebby had busted out of the asylum. When Ebby asked to have dinner, Bill mused that at least he could drink openly, even if Ebby was trying to be sober. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course, he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing an oasis. Drinkers are like that. The door opened and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. At about 11 o'clock in the morning of the third day, my friend Abby stood in the door. As before, bright and cheerful. I remember being a little suspicious of him. I thought perhaps this time he'd turn on the evangelical heat. But no, he was a prudent man. We chatted about everything excepting drinking. And it finally put me in the position of having to ask him again about those simple principles for recovery. This admitting you were hopeless, well, that wasn't too hard. This getting honest with yourself and another person, well, one could do that. This making restitution for harms done other people, a tough job, but certainly one would try that. Working with others without any demand for money or acclaim. Well, that would be just wonderful. But when he came to the God part, again, I remember a terrible balking and rebellion. Let's look at what the author is saying. Go out in your mind and look at what he's trying to describe. What is an oasis when you're out in the desert, a desert of futility? It's often a mirage, right? You often end up drinking sand. Bill's trying to tell us that what we think is not necessarily what is. This party might be an oasis of healing cool water, but the likelihood is it's a mirage. 
The reason I point that out is because that thought came to Bill and we're going to hear Bill's experience and learn this meeting with Ebby was, in fact, the cool drink of water he had been searching for, because this is Bill's encounter with a power greater than himself, with a capital P. Consider the words Bill uses to describe his drinking buddy, fresh-skinned and glowing. Regardless of how you talk or whatever, to describe your drinking buddy as fresh-skinned and glowing, it's freaking weird. Especially when we think of the context and time frame of the 1930s. There's a reason that happened, right? There's something strange in that description. This was troubling to Bill. Remember he's drinking, got it hidden all over the house. But the experience of Ebby coming to the door was so profound, he's trying madly to figure out what's just happened to him. Have you ever been disappointed, but curious? Bill is curious as to why his drinking buddy won't have a drink. Have you ever not trusted when someone won't drink with you or take a hit off the pipe? Must be a cop. Come, what's this all about? I queried. He looked straight at me. Simply, but smilingly, he said, I've got religion. Now, I suspect about half of you reading this right now are what people would call religious. We don't often know the difference between relationship and religion. The other half of you really don't care for religion. But all I want to say to you is if I'm drinking and planning to drink a lot, and someone's coming who I think is going to party with me, and when I ask them what's up with them, they say, I've got religion. The fun meter just went to zero, really quickly. This is going to suck. I'm going to get a lecture from hell. In fact, I think if you see a picture of hell, it's me at this table with this asshole. Right? Because that's just what we know we got coming. I was aghast. So that was it last summer an alcoholic crackpot, now, I suspected, a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. But he did no ranting. In a matter-of-fact way he told how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. That was two months ago, and the result was self-evident. It worked. He had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. I was shocked but interested. Think about how incredible that would be to have two men that you'd never met come to court and vouch for you. They told Ebby of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. Why do we try to sugarcoat the idea of religion in the modern fellowship, by saying things like, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. We just confuse people. The religious idea is that God dwells in you. It's that simple. All we're saying is there's a power in you that's greater than you, regardless of whether you believe it, and it's the power to live. Then they added a practical program of action, which proved that fact to me, through me, if I cared to go along with the idea. I'm not religious. I'm in relationship. So, there's the miracle. This guy can't be sober. Yet, there he is. He came to tell Bill exactly what happened to him. We owe everyone we encounter no less, which is why we should do the steps, not because we must, but to get armed with the facts about ourselves. Notice how Bill's friend didn't come to pass the meeting list or a book. He came to pass his experience of redemption onto Bill. Bill didn't know it at the time when he opened the door and he saw Ebby standing there fresh-skinned and glowing, that he had encountered the presence of the living God. Ebby had already passed it on to Bill before even one word had been spoken. That's what happened. That's the testimony of Bill Wilson, the famous atheist, by the way. Certainly, I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat, on still Sundays, way over there on the hillside, 
there was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed, my grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died, these recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. Bill is describing to us a movement in his spirit that caused him to have an emotional experience. Has that ever happened to you? Something just so moved you, that you had an emotional experience and people thought you were having emotion, but behind the emotion was a movement of the spirit, like the revelation of Bill's grandfather's faith when he denied the preacher's right to tell him how he must live. Essentially saying, you can't tell me how to worship my God. He maintained that attitude until his death. That was a man who was sure of who he was and whose he was. Those are the thoughts that came to Bill and caused him to be moved in his spirit. Have you ever been moved in your spirit? Have you ever had an emotional experience that you knew was the spirit moving you? It's so important because later when they talk about God, as we understood him, we are not we. It's these tangible sensory experiences that prove the power to us through us, that's the understanding we're growing in, not doorknobs, or light bulbs, or a group of drunks, none of that nonsense people have made up over the years. The authors left us precise instructions throughout the rest of the book of how to move forward. But the first thing is a compelling testimony of depth and weight. Bill goes on to describe. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. How could there be so much of precise and immutable law, and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe, who knew neither time nor limitation. But that was as far as I had gone. With ministers, and the world's religions, I parted right there. Do you understand what he's saying? Bill has moved into the knowledge that. I don't believe there is no God, I just don't like the word God, but I think there's order to things that I can't explain. He's telling us about his evolution, from the encounter he had with Ebby, because he had been a pronounced atheist for years. He began by admitting there was something bigger than himself, but he wasn't ready to name it. And he wasn't ready to claim it as his own, yet. Have you ever had the experience of knowing there was something bigger than yourself, yet you couldn't define it? Half the original fellowship was atheist or agnostic. The other half were religious people, who were all similarly dying in their addictions. Yet, to a man they all agreed that this was their shared experience. An encounter with a power greater than themselves. Bill is talking about himself here and the experience he had. When they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated, and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ I conceded the certainty of a great man, not too closely followed by those who claimed him. His moral teaching most excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult, the rest I disregarded. The wars which had been fought, the burnings and chicanery that religious dispute had facilitated, made me sick. I honestly doubted whether, on balance, the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible, the brotherhood of man a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. How many of you can relate to Bill when he talks about being hurt by religious people and their ideas? How many of you have thought of them as hypocrites? 
if my only example of Christ and the certainty of who Christ is, comes from other humans, I might be misled. We are sorry if you have been hurt by religious people and we invite you into our fellowship. Bill is telling you that he believes in the devil or he's willing to believe in the devil, but he's not really going to buy into that whole church thing. Can some of you can relate to the way his mind is working? Bill continues to tell the story of the power of witness, the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, the power of witness that his friend Ebby was testifying to. I call your attention to the way in which Bill describes the encounter. But my friend sat before me, and he made the point-blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Have you ever heard the argument about whether we are recovered or recovering because it's not an argument? They use the word recovered 17 times in the instructions, contained within the pages of the book. They only say recovering twice. Both of which are in the chapter to the wives about the still drinking alcoholic. This was a mining term at the time the book was written. The authors meant exactly what they said, but they just told you alcoholism wasn't a disease back then, there was no medical condition to recover from. What he's talking about is redemption, raised from the scrap heap to a level of life, better than the best we've ever known. We are something of infinite value recovered from the scrap heap. It's not an argument. If you haven't had the experience, you couldn't explain it to anyone. However, you wouldn't need to explain it to anyone who has had the experience, the minute you spoke to one another, you'd feel the shared experience because spirit testifies to spirit. Bill then begins to look inwardly, eyesight without insight is spiritual blindness. Anytime there is a question mark in the text, the authors are encouraging you to reflect on your own life, he was faced with the thought of where this power comes from. Had this power originated in him? Obviously, it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at the minute, and this was none at all. How many of you don't like to admit powerlessness? understand where the power comes from. For students of the other book, I ask you to consider the story of Lazarus. See John 11, 1-44 for further reading if you desire, how much power did Lazarus have to come out of that grave? We suggest that he had none until he was called. Let's look more at the experience of the authors to determine if our experience aligns with theirs. That floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in a human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past, here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. Thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want Him enough. At long last I saw, I felt, I believed. You'll often hear people talk repeatedly about the good news this book brings. But the book doesn't bring the good news, the recovered man or woman brings the good news, as evidence of their new creation. Bill saw the evidence of this in Ebby. The evidence that a power greater than himself had taken up residence and now began to inform his path. No one was ever expected to come to believe in power in Alcoholics Anonymous without first seeing the miracle, feeling the power, and then coming to believe. The goal of 12-step recovery is to wake up. After you have surgery, they take you to a recovery room where you wake up. Welcome to the recovery room. Notice how Bill describes the experience and remembers his pre-war musings in the graveyard. He was frightened. He went to a churchyard, getting ready to go to a very bloody battle. Then he saw a gravestone, and it was an old soldier who drank himself to death after a war. Here Bill was a soldier who'd survived the war. He had had this profound spiritual experience in that graveyard, reading that headstone. Now, here he is, 
having survived war, drinking himself to death in New York City. When he had these realizations, that power came on him again. The real significance of this experience is that the power came to him and visited him in the graveyard and now that power is with him again. That's very significant. To know that that's what Bill and I are bearing witness to, power. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. For a brief moment, I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have Him with me and He came. But soon the sense of His presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself. And so, it had been ever since. How blind I had been. Why do we need a manner of living? Because we have profound experiences and then they are blotted out by worldly clamors. We have perfectly functioning forgetters. Recovery is a manner of living which requires daily maintenance. Encounters with the power are often blotted out by worldly clamors because that's what human life consists of. Time to grab your notebook and answer some questions. Remember write down the questions and then pause here. Press play once you have completed your answers. Questions for segment 7. Question 1. Write out your answer. Have you ever experienced someone you know have a profound, visible change in their way of life? Did it cause you to ask what happened? Question 2. Write out your answer. Would you have listened better and would it have made a difference if your loved ones had done no ranting? Question 3. Write out your answer. What made Ebby look different? Question 4. Write out your answer. Describe a moment when you have been moved in your spirit and it manifested in an emotional reaction. Question 5. Write out your answer. Do you have a story, like Bill's, that holds depth and weight? Question 6. Write out your answer. What thoughts have made you swallow hard? Question 7. Write out your answer. What thoughts from your own life have made you doubt the power? Question 8. Write out your answer. At what point did you recognize your need for power? Question 9. Write out your answer. Are you afraid to call on God? Question 10. Write out your answer. What things are blocking you from the power? Question 11. Write out your answer. Have you ever made a foxhole deal with God? Did he fail? Did you keep your end of the deal? At the hospital I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium treatments. There I humbly offered myself to God, as I then understood Him, to do with me as He would. I placed myself unreservedly under His care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without Him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch. I have not had a drink since. Does that sound like the third step prayer to you? How did Bill then understand God? Very basically, by having had a tangible sensory experience, and the beginnings of a belief in the possibility of redemption. We want you to understand why there's a second step encounter with God before we say the third step prayer. 
That's because the third step has no power unless you have encountered the power to carry out the third step decision. Without encountering power, the prayers are just empty words. The biggest reason that we get high again is that we haven't encountered power. Bill then states that he never drank again. I would like to point out that he was a pretty serious drunk. Notice he did not say, I haven't had a problem since. Sometimes we give people the impression that when you come into the rooms and you're operating in God's will, that it's going to be glorious. We would like to warn you that you're going to be sustained, and you're going to be at peace, however, you're going to have struggles. Schoolmate visited me, and I fully acquainted him with my problems and deficiencies. We made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrongs. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the utmost of my ability. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. Never was I to pray for myself, except as my requests bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive. But that would be in great measure. This passage describes Bill's experience with the steps, as he and Ebby, knew them at the time. They were based on the Oxford Group's principles, but later formed the basis of what is known today as the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. God consciousness equals the awareness of God in my life. In and through me. The author is talking about beginning this manner of living and the steps he took. He is describing the abundance of answers he received from the Spirit. Notice in the passages from the book, the use of capital letters. For instance, in the previous passage when Bill writes, as he would have me. He is recognizing the divine guidance he is receiving to empower him to carry out this manner of living. When Bill asked, the power provided and in great measure. This is the experience he is presenting to us. As Bill wraps up his story, he continues to describe the actions taken to clear away the obstacles between himself and his creator. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things, were the essential requirements. Simple, but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of Light who presides over us all. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. What are those things Bill is talking about that will cause a new relationship with his Creator? Notice the way that Bill keeps calling our attention to his encounter with the power. Any of you readers familiar with that other book? The references are thinly veiled by the use of capital letters. He is telling us of the way he progressed from an initial encounter with power, how that power carried him through the process of becoming armed with the facts about himself, and then coming to understand that power in a different way. He talks about the victory over alcohol. There was a sense of victory, followed by such a peace and serenity as I had never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up, as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually, but His impact on me was sudden and profound. For a moment I was alarmed, and called my friend, the doctor, to ask if I were still sane. He listened in wonder as I talked. Finally, he shook his head saying, something has happened to you I don't understand. But you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who have such experiences. He knows that they are real. I want you all to get the profundity of Bill's testimony, 
and then adopt that experience into your psyche and see if we couldn't do a better job of carrying this message of redemption to the world. Time to grab your notebook and answer some questions. Remember write down the questions and then pause here. Press play once you have completed your answers. Questions for segment 8. Question 1. Write out your answer. What is meant by drinking became a luxury? Question 2. Write out your answer. What is alcoholic insanity? Question 3. Write out your answer. What are worldly clamors? Question 4. Write out your answer. What is the goal of 12-step recovery? Question 5. Write out your answer. When the authors say, God as we understood Him, how do they understand God? Question 6. Write out your answer. Ebby promised that once Bill had taken the steps Bill would understand two things. What were they? Question 7. Write out your answer. What must be destroyed and who must destroy it? Congratulations you have completed Step 1 in the Position of Neutrality Interactive Step Experience. Please submit your answers to your mentor for discussion and review. Next we will go through Step 2.